So we're in our second message uh, in the series, The Marvels of Biblical Joy. So I want to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at a passage that's probably, I would think, is very familiar in looking at the, the concept of the fruit from the root. The fruit from the root in Galatians 5.22. And I want to give you a couple of updated thoughts from last week, uh, just to kind of set a little bit of the context for this morning's message and help you tie in some things that if you weren't here or just need a quick reminder, uh, hopefully they'll help you uh, just orient a little bit to the the whole series. So um, last week we looked at key three ideas uh, that came from um, the text in Nehemiah 8-9, which says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. You may recall that, that specific passage. And so the first key thought that we looked at is the joy is a character, if you will, part of the person. I, I hate using the word part in one, one way, but it's part of the person of who the Lord is. So when we think about the joy of the Lord being our strength, it is actually about His personhood. It's not just some, like, uh, amb- uh, like uh, I guess just some kind of weird um, ethereal ob- uh, idea. It's about his person. And so the second part of that truth that we recognize is for us to experience the joy of the, the Lord being our strength. It means that we have to have communion with him. So when we relate to the Lord, especially through salvation, that joy becomes ours in communion. And then the third uh, aspect of the, the joy that we saw is this. Joy actually provides us some practical outworkings. The three things, if you remember, the first is it gives us a strength for ministry. If you recall uh, in that passage in Nehemiah, the people were told to stop weeping over their sin because the joy of the Lord is our strength, and they were told to go minister to those that weren't prepared they didn't have the means, and so they, then they took the, um, the, the resources that they had and ministered to others. The second thing that they did is they obeyed, um, simply that, that the joy of the Lord gives us that willingness to obey. They, they did what they were called to do. And then the third is this, that it results in praise to God, that we uh, are called to be people that glorify God in all we do. So this morning, we are going to be turning to this idea of the joy of the Lord being part of what the Holy Spirit provides in the fruit of the Spirit. So let's read Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and let's go to 23 as well, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, I have, um, over the course of my days in ministry here, uh, emphasized an important truth that I think is uh, found here. This, in, in, in this passage, the word fruit is in the what tense? Singular. Y'all been listening all over these years. Thanks. That was really encouraging. It is in the singular. I, I, if the Maddox were here, Greg would be probably rolling his eyes and laughing. They actually found like a little coffee table book and presented it to me that has like the title of something about the fruits of the Spirit. And, you know, I, I don't need any more gag gifts. <laughs> okay, my office is overflowing as it is. Um, but the, the truth is, the fruit is singular, okay, because... That's how God works. That's, that's how, it's like there's not multiple fruits that don't, ha- we don't get 
pieces and parts of these things, okay? So here's, here's an interesting thing. You guys know I'm, I'm starting to really dive into my study on Spurgeon in, in, in some more depth. And so just kind of sifting through all of his material, I keep finding things. And um, here's one of the things that he insisted. I love this. Um, he says that the product of the Spirit of God is one. Now, that doesn't sound that profound, but it is. The product of the Spirit of God is one. And when we think about the singularity of the fruit of the Spirit, though it's comprised of these characteristics, those characteristics still make up the singular fruit and the product of what God wants to do in and through our lives. So I would say that when we think through these ideas of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on, those are certainly attributes to the singular fruit. So we, we could have lots of illustrations about this, but think about, like, if you look at an individual, each of us has different attributes about us, but they make up the one individual, right? So I have a beard. Not everybody has a beard. Dusty doesn't have a beard. But I have hair. Dusty doesn't have hair, okay? <laughs> you shave your head. Um, Dusty always wears sunglasses on his head. I never wear sunglasses on my head except for around my eyes. So... But we could go through the room, right? Different hair color. You know, we, we have different body shapes and sizes. All of these things individualized, but they are attributes to who we are as one individual. Think about the fruit itself. You have the aroma, you have the texture, you have the, the different qualities or attributes of what it, just, it consists of with pulp, seeds, juice, all those things, different flavors. All those things we would say, yeah, but that's an orange or that's an apple. They're distinct, but it's one fruit. Does that make sense? And so when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, we need to understand, even though I'm, I'm looking at the one attribute of joy this morning out of this text, it is, it is an attribute of the entire work of the Spirit in us. Now, with that said, Paul does begin when he talks about this fruit of the Spirit with uh, the, the topic or the attribute of love. We've actually covered the topic of love in a previous series on uh, the, the fruit uh, or charity and its fruits, looking at 1 Corinthians 13. And so if you really want to hear like a lot of rich thoughts about that, um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast on that. Better yet, I would encourage you to read Jonathan Edwards' book, Charity and Its Fruits. It's a great, great read, um, worth your time and energy as he unpacks a ton about 1 Corinthians 13 and love. So we're going to look at the second attribute this morning of joy. And I want to begin because I think this is an important thing for us to recognize about the topic of joy. Joy is something, yes, is given to us by the Lord because of communion with Him. It's, it's ours by possession. But at the same time, there's an aspect to the fruit of joy being produced in us that is also seasonal. It's, it's something that we, it's, it's not like perpetually ours. How do we know that? Well, Mason even talked about it this morning as he read out of James 1, that we experience many, what, trials and struggles in our lives that hinder joy at some level. And I think part of what the Lord has designed uh, in us and designed in this whole production of the fruit of the Spirit in us is that there's aspects of it that are seasonal. How many of you have had some kind of level of grief over something in your life where your joy feels lacking? I mean, I have, right? You, you experience the, the death of a loved one or something unexpected in life, a major struggle, some kind of disappointment. 
um, that can overwhelm you. And you, you begin to, to stretch and, and, and struggle to find that sense of joy in your life. Even though you know the Lord is providing it, you're, you're trying to connect the dots there. I think this is especially true, and I think we get this back out of Nehemiah 8 um, last week that we looked at, is why, why were the people, the Israelites, struggling to experience the joy of the Lord as their strength? They were, at that point, hearing the law read again publicly. And hearing the law, they recognized that they were sinful people. And when we encounter our sinfulness and our brokenness, there, there ought to be grief over our sin. It ought to create a desire for joy. And, and I'll, I'll, I think this is a key idea. If we don't experience brokenness over sin, if we don't experience grief at some point, if we don't experience sorrow at some point, then what we do and, and what we look for in joy is actually not the best joy. We, we tend to supplant it with cheap joy of worldly joy, and we're going to look at what that is in a minute. But, but it's not a satisfying joy because I think the work of the Holy Spirit begins in our lives with a confrontation about our lostness, about our sin, about our need to be broken before the Lord. And when we have that rightly, then we know what the joy of salvation really consists of. And then we begin to understand how the Lord wants to produce something different in us than where we were in our lostness, where we were in our sin. He wants to transform us into people that look like Christ and reflect His own joy. And, and apart from that brokenness, we won't really find that. So I, I, I think just to, to summarize this real quickly in these introductory remarks first, the work of the Holy Spirit is to produce a brokenness and to, to inform us of our lostness. But that's not the end of his, his work. The end of His work is to produce His fruit in us, which can, is characterized by divine joy, okay? So we, we ought to see that divine joy being characterized in our lives. So what, is, what does this entail? Well, let me, let me give you three things. The first is this. We need to remember that when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, that we recognize that the Holy Spirit is the root of the fruit. I know that is a simple statement again, but if I think this is part of the problem in our modern era, is that too many people focus and too many churches focus on what? The fruit itself. And they start talking and emphasizing the wrong characteristics of what the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit is, whether that be the fruit itself or the gifts of the Spirit. Those gifts are given to us for what purpose? For my benefit? Do I have any, like maybe say the gift of teaching, for my benefit? No. Do I, if, if I have the gift of service, is it for my benefit? If I have the, have the gift of um, giving or generosity or faithfulness, what, those things are not for my benefit. They are for the benefit of the church. And so even in those things, what we see is the root of the Spirit at work produces things to glorify Him as we see His working in our lives for the, to, to point back to what He's doing in and through us to reflect the work of the Spirit and Christ's glory being edified in us, the body. Does that make sense? Y'all are looking at me like I'm, I'm kind of weird right now. Okay, so it makes sense. Okay, good. So, um, with with this, and, and 
I hope this illustration will, will make a little bit of sense. Um, when you think about fruit on the tree, and how, how many of y'all have ever like gone out and picked fruit from a tree? Okay, most of you have in here. Okay, good. If you've done that, you'll notice that not every piece of the fruit from the same tree is exactly the same, even though it's characterized by the same things. Like, so Russ uh, Corbett, many of you know, he used to live about a mile and a half, two miles up the road from, from here, and he had a pear tree in his yard, and he could not keep up with the pears from the pear tree in his yard. So my grandmother, Warren, she would make this delicious stuff called pear honey. And so I got online and I found a recipe for pear honey. It's about six cups of sugar to about four pears. <laughs> so good, though. You just boil it all and everything. So I would, I would justify going and helping Russ try to pick off the pears and go to the, the tree. But here's the interesting thing. Again, all those pears from the, that I would pick from that tree, they weren't the exact same size, even though they were the same fruit. Okay? Now, what, why am I sharing that? Because here's part of the, the, the situation I think that we face in, in our own spiritual journeys and our, our lives. We don't all express all the characterizations of the fruit of the Spirit in the same exact way. There's a little bit of uniqueness to us. Why is that? Because we're all unique, one. Because I think there's circumstances that we each face in our lives that are a little bit different where we face at different seasons, different trials, different struggles, maybe according to our own personality, maybe according to our own background and struggle with sin. We have different bents and, and places that the Holy Spirit has to work and different seasons and moments that He's doing those things. So we ought not become judgmental of one another in how we are operating. What we ought to do is serve one another according to our spiritual gifting so that we're encouraging and fostering the best development in one another of what the Spirit wants to do in our lives in His own timing. So I don't look around and go, well, they're not joyous enough. They're not, they're not loving enough. No, we need maturity. We, we need to trust that the Holy Spirit is doing work, and I want to foster that in each one of our own lives as a pastor. That's, that's part of my responsibility, how to, how to shepherd you as a body, us together, so that we can um, like work through these things and, and, and uh, understand how God is operating differently in each one of our lives. So here's... The good news of it, though, and I think this is um, important, for every believer, there is going to be a measure of joy produced in us. And I think for every believer, because there's a measure of joy, what we want to do is figure out how to cling to that, even in the midst of the trials and the struggles, even in the midst of the circumstances that seem overwhelming. So we're, we're going to move through that and look at it a little more carefully in a few minutes. Now, this brings us to a second truth, Okay. So the first one is the Holy Spirit is the root producing the fruit. The second is this. Though we go through seasons, it is the, the, the fruit of joy, and this is hopefully good news, is an, an inevitable event or an inevitable product that will come about in your life, and it's legitimate. Okay, It's inevitable and it's legitimate in the life of the believer. And I've talked about this, even though it's seasonal. Okay, It is inevitable. The Holy Spirit is going to produce these things in us. And if we're not experiencing it, we may need to go, why am I not experiencing these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in my life? That, that would be like a good evaluation question. Or to go, I haven't experienced joy in six months. W what's the disconnect 
in my communion with God? Because if the joy of the Lord is our strength, and I've not experienced joy for six months, what's inhibiting that joy? I may legitimately be in a season, but that season ought to come to an end at some point as we conscientiously, as we commune with the Lord conscientiously, according to some principles that we're going to get to look at in just a minute. So, I would also encourage you with this thought as we think about the inevitability and its um, legitimacy. And even though it's, it is maybe seasonal for us now, there's also this point, and, and I hope this is encouraging to you because I've mentioned this before uh, a couple times recently. Part of us doing this, I, I guess being intention is a good way to put it, between grief, sorrow, lostness, sin, um, even for us as believers, though lostness is handled, and the experience of perpetual joy, because we can't experience perpetually, is this idea that we will experience it perpetually. It, it, I think the, the grief and the sorrow and the loss of things in this life remind us that this life is not our home. And joy will be perpetually ours in heaven. And, and that's part of why I think we, we need to recognize that the Lord also uses those, these moments or seasons where we don't experience joy to remind us that we do have a heavenly home and the promise of eternity. The, the third truth now is that biblical joy being produced by the Spirit is unlike worldly joy. I, I hope you are pretty aware of that, but just to make sure, I, I want to go over this. Um, I, I, as I was reading, this, this kind of thought came to me. I, I think I was reading somebody, I can't remember, I've read a bunch of different author, authors this week thinking about these things and just praying over this. Um, but here's the idea. Worldly joy, when we think about that, it can burn hotly for a moment, right? And, and let, me, let me kind of throw this out there. Um, when was the last time you got something new, maybe for your birthday, maybe for Christmas, uh, maybe just some special thing, and you're like, man, this is just awesome, and you, you, you had that burst of joy, maybe even as you as a parent giving a gift to your kids, right? And then what happens? Give it a little bit of time. What happens about the joy of that object? It, it wanes, doesn't it? It, it, it can kind of drift into the distance. Now, even though you may have a memory of what it created in you, that, that worldly joy is, is like a flame that just burns for a moment, and then kind of dissipates. So I wanted to illustrate that. I didn't, I had, some of the guys saw me with this and they were like, oh, flash paper, flash paper. Um, I've used flash paper before, but it's been quite a while and I tried to look at it uh, online and get some. One, it was going to take a long time to get here. So two, it was, it was just really actually hard to find. How many of you know about flash paper? Some of you, okay, Katie, I know you do. Um, so this is, not flash paper, it's called wish paper. It operates a little bit like flash paper, I guess. Um, but here's, here's the illustration. If, if you've ever seen flash paper burn, it operates in a similar manner, okay? And, and here's what I want you to see is when I light this, it's going to light. It's kind of cool stuff. So let's, let's just watch this. This is the fun part. Watch carefully. Uh-huh. And I'll never catch it again because the air movement doesn't let the ashes fall very fast. So, um, Jeannie, you can close your mouth. <laughs> Gina's like, ah, oh, so cool. Did it finally fall? Yeah, okay. So, illustration. Flash paper, that wish paper, 
though it, it lights and, and creates a flame, and, and that's actually a long flame, like flash paper, if you light it, it goes just like that. It's like a burst of flame. You may have seen magicians use it. That's, that's typically who uses that. That's a pretty good illustration because you could see how it burns, but then it just dissipates and goes off into nowhere, right? That's, that's worldly joy. <laughs> now, imagine trying to light something off of that. Now, if it was really flammable material, you might have time to light it off of that. Off of flash paper, almost impossible to do, okay? But, but here's the, the difference. Imagine a candle, just a simple, like even one of those little votive candles that, you know, they go, they float and all that stuff, go in little lighter uh, candle things. They're small, but how long will a votive candle burn? It'll burn a long time, right? Why? Because at the center of a candle is what? Hello? It's a wick. Thank you. And, and that wick is treated in such a way that it will burn for a long time, right? And, and, and so the illustration is this. Worldly joy, though it flashes, godly joy burns like a candle because the Holy Spirit, like the wick, is at the root of things and provides the source. And then if you want to start a fire, do something else practical with it, it's possible because it burns for a long time. So, so I know that, that I've talked a lot about that idea of root and fruit and, and the Holy Spirit being at the center. But we have the work of the Holy Spirit, this member of the Godhead who does this in us, who's producing this joy in us not for a fleeting moment, but with the goal of us enjoying God for eternity and experiencing the, the entirety of joy that is meant for us in communion with our Godhead forever. See, the, the difference between worldly joy and biblical godly joy is extreme. And so that's why when I think about the title of the series, The Marvels of Biblical Joy, it's about getting what God has best designed for us to experience. So I want to introduce you to somebody. Part of what um, we set out to do this last year is to introduce some folks through this kind of idea of real people, real struggles, real success. And so it's not that we're looking at the individuals as just individuals to do messages on, but hopefully that they'll illustrate some of these biblical truths as well. And I thought that this would be a, a great uh, moment to introduce someone to you. So I want to read uh, a quote uh, about this person that, that one of their biographers wrote and then introduce you to him further. By the tones of his voice and expression of his countenance, he showed that joy was the prevailing feature of his own mind. Joy springing from entireness of trust in the Savior's merit and from love to God and man. His joy was quite penetrating. Introducing to you William Wilberforce. How many of you are familiar at all with William Wilberforce? Raise your hands high, okay? Okay four or five of you in here, okay? 
good. You're going about to learn a, a bunch of great stuff about William Wilberforce. Um, let me share a couple of historical things. First of all, he was born in Hull, England in 1759. He was actually uh, raised by his parents in a high church tradition that would be probably more Church of England, Anglican, uh, uh, like that, um, leaning towards a Catholic, um, Roman Catholic kind of format or, or uh, style in the high church worship. But at the age of nine, he was sent away to live with his aunt and uncle who um, were more of an evangelical bent. That means that back then, they would have been looking probably at Methodism or uh, maybe some Baptists that, that would have uh, been influential. Uh, historians have looked at Wilberforce's life and know that he was influenced in, during those years by George Whitfield, John Wesley, and John Newton. Um, but through his education, especially when he graduated uh, or finished his, uh, I, I guess, his primary education and moved into some later schooling in England, is structured differently than it is here in the U.S., but he went to Cambridge uh, and ultimately gave up his faith entirely. He was a young man still at that point. And then on a whim, Wilberforce decided at about age 21 to, uh, to run for a, a position in the House of Commons uh, for Hull. So each like little township would have a representative in the House of Commons, which is part of the English uh, um, just political system, okay, where they vote and look at issues for their nation. So at 21, he was elected to the House of Commons. Um, then, and he started a long career in politics from there. So he was about 25, about four years into his career in politics, uh, politics that for his job, he was traveling to France, and he ended up on a, I think it was on a train, um, or anyhow on the travel, with uh, a man named Isaac Milner, who was actually a former teacher of his, a little bit older, and uh, in this train, Milner confessed or, or began to share his own genuine evangelical faith with Wilberforce. And in this, Wilberforce's uh, stereotypes of evangelical Christians was disrupted. And he and Milner began a solid friendship where Milner began to influence him more and more in their conversations about his faith. And then, and, and I, I'm, after reading Wilberforce's biography and some of the things on this, I want to pick up this next book. Um, but he began reading Philip Doddridge. Okay, how many of y'all have heard of his name by chance? Okay, so I've, I've heard his name, but I've not read anything by Dodgers, but this is a book that I'm going to be picking up and reading. Um, it's, the, the work is called The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. So uh, just why I'm going to pick that up, not just because of Wilberforce, but Spurgeon actually refers to Dodgers' work as well. And so I think it's going to be one of these influential things in my own life to go back and read this. Um, so his book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, Wilberforce read that, coupled with Milner's influence, and he became convicted over his sinfulness. He, he was, he was uh, broken over his need for Christ. And, and the, the biography that I read on him said that he actually, through the first conversation with Milner, assented intellectually to Christ and being the, the, the Savior, but it wasn't until he read Dodger's work that he actually became convicted of his sin and repented and believed. Then he reached out to John Newton to talk about how he as a Christian would operate in, in career politics. And it was this interesting dynamic of in, spiritual influencers in his life where he ultimately came to Christ and surrendered to him. So ultimately, and, and in this period, you have to, I think, understand this. It was highly unusual for a career politician to be an evangelical Christian. 
it, it was more likely, and, and Wilberforce, I'm going to read something here, it was more likely for the, the career politician to be nominal in their Christian faith, that they just participate in worship, but they didn't actually live out their faith. They just called themselves believers. So Wilberforce developed a deep Christian conviction, and so much so that his primary effort in politics came to be a focus on the abolishing of slavery in the, in the, the British colonies and in the, in the British uh, economic system. So in 1787, listen to this, what he wrote in his journal, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And by manners, he didn't mean like having, you know, being able to sit down at a table and eat properly or say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, in the South. He's talking about the morals. He, he understood that the morality of culture was in a state of decay and decline. And so he, he was set out to reform the slave trade and reform morals. Actually, abolish the slave trade, not reform. Abolish the slave trade and reform morals. So, he wrote that in 1787, and that, that year, that December, he, he would to, was telling, like pre-emptying uh, the, the meeting at the House of Commons, saying, I'm going to present something at the House of Commons. I'm going to present this, this uh, pursuit. And so that year, he presented the idea to abolish the slave trade in 1787. So in the year 1807, the House of Commons finally voted to abolish the slave trade. 20 years of tapping that issue. It was not an easy political career win for Wilberforce. To boot, listen to this, it took another 26 years for the British colonies to finally stop the slave trade. It was literally three days before Wilberforce's death, that the abolishment of the slave trade actually took full effect. Forty-six years to pursue and follow that. Real person, real struggle, real success, perseverance. But it's not just in the political realm. Listen to this. Wilberforce had several physical ailments that plagued him. First was his eyesight. It's interesting. He actually wrote that he could scarcely see how to direct his pen. Um, I, I remember my dad working for a, a gentleman when we moved to Chattanooga that had very poor eyesight. He had thick glasses, and then he also had a magnifying glass, and he would lean over the work like this. That, that's what I imagine Wilberforce doing, is leaning so closely to the page to see what he, could, what he was writing because his eyesight was so poor. Here's why his eyesight was so poor. This is an interesting fact. He had actually struggled with ulcerative colitis, and I don't want to get into all that stuff, but because of the struggle with that health in his body system, it was very painful. And so what the doctors at that time did is they prescribed a regimen of morphine. And so he was taking morphine on a consistent basis. So what led to his poor eyesight was the, uh, actually the, a morphine poisoning that caused his eyesight to go bad. It's, it's crazy, you know, 
Praise God for medical uh, advances, right, that we know the, the differences in what those things cause. But they also say because of his addiction and, and his use of the morphine, they don't understand how he was, like, able to do what he was, was uh committed to do in his thinking and his efforts because it should have stripped him of his senses. But he was so disciplined that he was able still to, to do the things well that he did. The other thing about Wilberforce is at some point he was wrestling with some kind of lung issues. And uh, they don't know if it's due to the lung issues or, or what, but he, he struggled with that. But at age 53, which as I was reading through that, it hit me. I just turned 53, so right at my age, Wilberforce started to have a problem with his spine, um, and some kind of degenerative uh, things started taking, uh, taking place in his spine, to the point that his head would, would drop grotesquely to his chest, and he couldn't hold his head up. And so one biographer described it as being so grotesque that he would be deformed if not for the charm of his face and his smile. And it was so bad that what Wilberforce did for the rest of his life is he actually wore a brace underneath his clothes to, to, to try to keep him somewhat erect so that he would not be grotesque to the people. But it's not only his physical ailment that Wilberforce faced. His wife struggled with depression and, and pessimism. She was just a negative person who seemed depressed all the time. And so Wilberforce was almost the exact opposite. His oldest son... Uh, named after him, actually fell away from the faith, uh, was rebellious to the point that Wilberforce even wondered if his uh, conversion was actually a genuine conversion that he had at some point in his young, younger years. Fortunately, later he did come back to the faith. Uh, Wilberforce's daughter, his only daughter, at 32, uh, she died from tuberculosis. Uh, they had about probably two and a half months when she contracted it to her, her dying. So, you can hear that Wilberforce was not just this champion who had his life all together and just walked, you know, this perfect, like, silver spoon in his mouth and everything was glorious. He was a man who wrestled with things in his life very seriously. So the question, how did Wilberforce overcome sub such obstacles and endure in his faith with such great perseverance? I want you to hear what he himself said to... Uh, a, a man named Lord Carrington, who had apparently expressed his own mistrust of joy in a letter to Wilberforce. So, Julie, this is that first slide. Here's what Wilberforce writes to Lord Carrington in response. He says, My grand objection to the religious system held by many who declare themselves Orthodox Christians is that it tends to render Christianity so much a system of prohibitions rather than of privileges and hopes, and thus the injunction to rejoice so strongly enforced in the New Testament is practically neglected. And religion is made to wear a forbidding and gloomy air and not one of peace and hope and joy. I, I read that. You can just go to a blank slide for now, Julie, or just go to the logo. Um, I read that the first time, and I was just blown away because I thought, how many people today look at Christians and, we, and they think about us, it, it is about the prohibitions. You don't, you can't, you shouldn't. Rather than the privileges and hopes that we have in Christ. And, and folks, if I could encourage you with anything, if we were to take 
the thoughts about what the root of the Spirit is doing in us to produce fruit, and we were to look at the life of someone like William Wilberforce who struggles, and we were to consider the own struggles in our own lives, we would look and we'd go, you know what, even though it's difficult, there's a greater joy, there's a greater hope, there's a greater privilege for who I am in Christ, because I get to commune with a holy God. And that precious truth changes everything in my my life and my perspective so that I have joy. Because communing with our Heavenly Father, experiencing the work of the Spirit in us, having Christ mediate these things on our behalf is the greatest privilege that we ever have. We don't deserve any of those things. But by God's grace, we are provided those things. That's, That's where joy comes from. That's why we can have, maybe it's not perpetual, but we can certainly find ways back into that joy in the midst of of trials. And here's, we're going to look at a couple more things that that Wilberforce says. And I want to encourage you to especially listen to, to how he understands the relationship of the work of the Spirit and the, the reading of Scripture to how he maintained joy. So let's look at this next quote, Julie. He further says, we can scarcely indeed look into any part of the sacred volume. What is the sacred volume? It's the scriptures. It's the promises of God found in the Old and New Testament, okay? So we can't, we can scarcely indeed look into any part of the sacred volume without abundant proofs. Promises of God, yes and amen. Those abundant proofs. We ought to be able to look at the promises of God and say, yes, those are true. Let's let's respond to those promises, and that's what Wilberforce is getting at. That it is the religion of the affections. Those affections are the longing that God has created in us, the leanings and desires of our heart. And when He's transformed our heart, our wills, our minds, and our emotions, our affections ought to lean into Him differently. So we that is it is the religion of the affections which God particularly requires. And Wilberforce in this quote that I've just shortened, he lists love, joy, and other things. Okay, but particularly because joy's there joy, is enjoined on us as our bounden duty and committed to us as our acceptable worship. Julie, if you'll just go to the logo. Is our bounden duty and commended to us as our acceptable worship. When you worship, is it a duty of delight? Is is it something that is produced because of your joy in the Lord, because you recognize that you're communing with the Holy God, because you're reflecting on the truths of Scripture when you worship, not just through modern contemporary songs and lyrics, but but how they truly relate and rightly relate to Scripture. And and I'm going to be a little bit transparent here for just a moment. That's been one of the worship wars that our church specifically has been in, not so much about the, the, which kind of worship we're going to do, traditional hymns, 90s maybe praise, or modern worship. It's been about what are we doing that's lyrically tied to the Scriptures and reflects that well. And I think we're winning that war. We want to go back to make sure that the lyrics that we're singing rightly reflect the truths of Scripture. And they're not, they're not like ambiguous but, but they're clearly defining the point that the, the Word of God teaches. Because if we don't do that, then our worship is going to be in vain. 
It's not going to be built on the, the, the genuine joy of communing with God because it is about us understanding the Word of God. And I think Wilberforce got that well. So Wilberforce also, being keenly aware of the importance of God's Word, he also does this. He emphasizes the work of the Spirit, which I, I think is part of why when I started putting these things together for this message this morning, I felt like Wilberforce was such a prime candidate to, to look at this real, or as an illustration of the fruit of the Spirit being joy. So listen to what he says in this statement. Julie, if you can put that up. He says, we learn from the Scriptures that it is one main part of the operations of the Holy Spirit to implant these heavenly principles in the human mind and to cherish their growth. Man, that, that, that just makes me happy, with, honestly, with joys of tears, like overwhelmed. Because my tendency, and, and Julia, leave that up for, for just a minute if you don't mind. My tendency is to go, oh yeah, I get all these truths in my mind, boom. But, but this is one of those things I'm trying to, to like become more and more disciplined in my life about, in, in practice especially, is I just don't want to, to contain information. And I, this is what I think I like about Wilberforce's statement. I want to cherish their growth. I, I want to meditate on these truths so much that they are the things that are most cherished to me. That, that when I wake, the Lord's on my mind. When I'm going to sleep, the Lord is on my mind. When, I, when something happens in my day, the Lord is on my mind because my mind is being renewed by the things of God and I'm cherishing those things consistently. It, it was a powerful statement that, again, where does it begin? What does Wilberforce say? He points us back to whom? The Holy Spirit. And, and, and Him being the root of all that happens in our spiritual lives as He convicts us of our need for of convictions of our sin and then of our need for Christ, all of that occurs through the work of the Word as it's shared with us. So, so it's amazing to see these things. Now, here's the other thing, and I want to read one last passage of Scripture and leave us with a couple of thoughts. So if you, if you haven't closed your Bibles, you want to turn there really quickly, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. So as I was reading through... Um, like skimming, and I have this electronics, electronically, so it helped me look through this a little bit. Um, it's, it's Wilberforce's book. Um, oh, gosh, I, I know I have it written somewhere in my notes here, but I, I can't remember it. The Practical, um, maybe I don't have it in here. Anyhow, he has a book on the practical views of religion, something like that. It is incredibly rich. Um, just a little bit I got to read through it, skimming. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to look up a couple things around this idea of, of joy, where he specifically mentioned joy. So I was able to, to get a couple of hits. And then that led me to do another search on First Peter. And interestingly enough, here is a passage that Wilberforce often referred to in his, his book, okay? And so I thought this would be a great way for us to, to conclude the message and go back to Scripture and, and see what uh, Peter here writes in 1 Peter 1. So we're going to begin in verse 3 and read through verse 9. 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy. Just stop there for just a minute and think. What does the mercy of God deal with? I try to remember this. Mercy is coupled with misery because of sin. 
We, we get reprieves from our, our misery of sin because of God's mercy. It's different than grace, okay? But His mercy abounds. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, now listen carefully. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Do you hear what I've talked about this morning? About the way that joy is momentary. It's just for a little while. It's not perpetual yet. Peter even recognizes that. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, let me pause there. When we think about this idea of glorying and honoring at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we, we sang this morning about natural or general revelation. When we uh, look at all the world, we see the Lord. But more specifically, when we look at Scripture, we see revealed the truth, the very specific truth about who the Lord is, every member of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter's getting at here, is that we see specifically the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, So again, that echoes, or, or Wilberforce echoes this truth from Scripture. Verse 8, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and listen to this, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Wow. Why would Wilberforce emphasize this passage? Well, let's read verse 9. I think this will help you uh, put this, or help us put this in context. He says, that we, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, when we really understand what it means to surrender to Christ, and I'm going to use Wilberforce's own historical context, to not be satisfied with a nominal Christian faith, but to be radically changed because of the truth of Scripture, the hope that is ours, the privilege that we have in Christ. What we will want to do is rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible because we can't fully express it. We, we simply cannot get our our heads, our minds, our thoughts wrapped fully around it. Why? Because it's rooted. It's contained in the joy of the Lord, who is immeasurable. We, 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 can't, we can't contain the Lord Himself. But because we're cherishing our growth in Him, we're, we're meditating on Him, we will never be fully satisfied in that. And guess what? Even to this point, even when we get to heaven, I think our joy will perpetually grow because we will not fully understand the Lord even then. 
And that's going to be part of the joy is learning more and more and more and more about our immeasurable, immortal God. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. And I think that's where Wilberforce comes in and says, this is the result of our salvation in Christ. It's the the flinging open of the doors to the greatest joy that we can ever experience, communion with our Father. Does does that make sense? Do, do Do you hear how the root and the fruit of what we get in our relationship with Christ or through Christ in the work of the Spirit is inexpressible? This morning... I want to challenge you with a couple things. The first one is this. I think this goes back to one of the things that Wilberforce says, but it comes back to also what the work of the Holy Spirit is and how He begins in our lives. We have to be sensitive to sin. I don't know if I put that battery on the charger, Will. I apologize last week. So, if we will guard our hearts carefully to make sure that the affections of our life are not tainted or inhibited by our sin, that is the first place we've got to be. Uh, like guarded or careful guarded. Because if we're not, then we live compromised lives. We, we live lives that will not lean into the joy of the Lord. We live lives that will be viewed as nominal. We'll, we'll fall into the stereotypical lens that uh, people will see us by that I think Wilberforce saw most men in his era by. So are you guarding the affections of your heart? Second, I'm I'm just going to build this off of Wilberforce, but all of the struggles that he had, I don't know where you are in your life. You may be in a season where you're struggling with some things. Will you look at someone like Wilberforce and will you say, you know what? They had it hard, but for their lifetime, they persevered. They persevered through trials and struggles with a joy that in the midst of personal grotesqueness, they maintained a smile and charm about their life because the joy of the Lord was his strength. Because the word of God was dear to his heart. Because he trusted the work of the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in his life. And lastly, will you do this? And this is a further evaluation question too. As you're experiencing the joy of the Lord, will it be that um, which is on the the, the tip of your tongue, so to speak, which you you testify of, which you you glorify the Lord in praise for, that, that people will, like Isaac Milner, who influenced Wilberforce, break down all the stereotypes because you're genuinely walking out your faith? Those are some serious questions for us to honestly consider this morning. So here's how I want, to, want us to do that. We're going to take a, just a time of personal reflection. I want us to pray. And I want you to run the inventory. Maybe the Holy Spirit mentioned something else to you in your own heart and mind this morning. That's fine. I'm, I'm, he's 
far wiser than me and able, <laughs> more powerful um, to, to speak directly to you. But I don't want us to leave this morning without reflecting on these things personally. So let's, let's just bow our heads for 30 seconds and then we'll, I'll close this with a, a public prayer. And let me just get this started. Heavenly Father, help us to search our hearts and minds right now and to reflect upon the truth of your word about the, the joy of the Lord that is produced by the work of the Spirit. Lord, let us reflect and find out if that joy is truly ours, if it's what leads to rejoicing in our heart that is an expressible uh, work because of the Word of God in us. And Lord, that's one thing I didn't mention earlier, but, but maybe we're struggling with joy because we're not in the Word well enough, and we need to recommit to a healthy devotion life and time of, of uh, soaking and studying Your Word. So Lord, I, I want to be quiet and just trust that Your Spirit will lead us to healthy decisions and response to the, to the gospel truth. Well, Heavenly Father, this morning, I especially want to thank you for your mercy and your grace, your grace that meets us where we are unable to provide for any means of our salvation, but through the work of Christ, his suffering and his endurance on the cross, taking upon himself our guilt and shame, dying on the cross and then resurrecting from the dead, Lord, we have victory by grace through faith in Christ and His work. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, I pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would continue to convict them and draw them and woo them to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that they would recognize that there is hope and peace afforded to them because of, of Jesus and Him alone, and Your perfect plan of salvation. And, Lord, for us that, that do know You through salvation... Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to, to work in us the fruit of his, his work, that He would create in us not just that of joy, but all the characteriz characterizations of that fruit. But primarily this morning as we're looking at joy, it's a great barometer to, to let us know, Lord, how we're doing, where we might be falling short of responding to, to Your purposes for us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So, Father, I don't know where each person is in this room with you, but you do. And you've had a chance to, to uh, work in their lives this morning and for them to respond to you. And I pray, Lord, that, that in that response, each person would hopefully find both conviction and freedom in, in their, that response to you. And that they would walk out of here today, Lord, more convinced, more um, grounded, Lord, leaning with the affections of their heart into the, the joy that you have for them in communion with, with you more effectively than when they arrived. And so, Lord, I don't know what the, the practical outworkings of all those things may be in their lives, but, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. 
And Lord, so as we go this week, may we be good testimonies of your faithfulness to us. May we persevere through the trials. May we not only experience the joy uh, that is ours because of our communion with you, but Lord, would we cherish that and, and help it to uh, grow because we're fostering the environment through humility and prayer and time in the word. So, Father, again, I thank you for the, the truth of your word, for the example of Wilber, William Wilberforce, and may we honor you and consider, just as um, Hebrews 12 talks about this great crowd of witnesses that we are surrounded by going before us and cheering us on in our faith, whether that be a heavenly crowd or an earthly crowd. Let us be encouraged to do what is right as we honor you with our lives, glorifying you in all things. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to remind you real quickly, if you have a student going into 6th grade through 12th grade, uh, you are a parent of youth. We need you to meet with Katie, who has flown the coop. She's just coming back in. Katie's going to be up here in front. Um, students, we want to ask you to just wait out in the foyer for your parents. Um, we just don't, we, we, we've got a decision to make that we just don't want you, like, part of right now. It's not negative or anything like that. We just don't want to put something in place and then rip it out if the carpet from you if you if it doesn't come about. So we want you to be patient until we reach a final decision. Um, Michael, finance team is meeting. Is that right? Is that after church today? Okay, so cool. So, okay, so um, anything else that I need to announce? Okay. Parents of youth remain. Um, have a blessed week in the Lord. And remember to go and connect in communities and change lives by sharing the love and good news of Jesus Christ with others. Thanks for being here to worship at the Grove Church.